This year, Deseret Book is celebrating Pioneer Day in a big way. On the 175th anniversary of the Vanguard Pioneer Company's arrival in the Salt Lake Valley, Deseret Book presents a Pioneer Day concert July 22nd at This Is The Place Heritage Park, featuring Alex Boyer, the Bonner family, Dallin Vell Bayless, the Truman Brothers, Callie Reed, and Deborah Bonner's Unity Gospel Choir. All this in one jam-packed night of celebrating our collective pioneer heritage with family and friends. You can get your tickets now at DeseretBookPresents.com. Again, that's DeseretBookPresents.com. As I prepared for this interview and read his new book, Let's Talk About Consecration, I wondered what led Stephen Harper to write this book. I planned to ask him that very question, but he answered it before I even asked. You'll hear him share this story, but I thought it was pretty incredible to think that it was something that happened as a 19-year-old boy that led to the writing of this book. And it struck me that the same experience was probably also the impetus for everything he has done in the years since. It struck me that Stephen Harper, though he would probably be very uncomfortable with me saying this, is a great example of the very principle he's teaching. Stephen C. Harper is a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. He earned a master's degree in American history from Utah State University and a Ph.D. in early American history from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. In 2013, Steve was appointed as the managing historian and general editor of Saints. He joined the religious education faculty at BYU in 2002. That year, he also became a volume editor of the Joseph Smith Papers. He is the author of several books, including Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Pearson, and I am so honored to have Stephen Harper on the line with me today. Stephen, thank you so much for thank being you, with Morgan. me. Morgan. It's a privilege for me to be here. Well, I, I'd like to start this interview. So we're going to be talking today all about consecration, but I, I want to start this interview in a bit of a unique place. You said in your book that you had a little bit of a rough first temple experience. And I also had a little bit of a rough first temple experience. So I was curious, but also um, I, I think there's a reason that we should talk about this. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that and then how you ultimately came to love the temple. Yeah, I think it's common. I don't think it's unusual at all for people to have that. And I, I don't know all the reasons why. There's, I think there's a lot of stress and anxiety associated with it. You know, we, we're told that it's super, super important. And then we're told that we can't be told very much. And so it's difficult to know what to expect exactly. And the biggest challenge for me was that... I was really sincere about it. I I wanted to I wanted to live up to the things I said I would do. And most of them were straightforward. You know, I was I I thought, "Oh, well, I've heard that before. I I know that. I there's nothing out of the blue here about the gospel or about chastity." But then the consecration part was different than what I had assumed. You know, I, I assumed I I knew about consecration. It was really simple. It went like this. Uh, 
in the early days of the church, God commanded the saints to live the law of consecration. They couldn't do it. So he took back the higher law of consecration, gave the lower law of tithing. And someday in the future, he'll have us live the higher law of consecration again. So when that did not match what the temple said about consecration, I found that to be jarring. It was disruptive to me, and I was quite worried that I had made a covenant to do something that I didn't understand and that I was worried about my ignorance. So I came out with a desire to learn the law of consecration, study the doctrine and covenants, which I had never done prior to that. We'd read it as a family, but I didn't pay attention. So that that was uh, sort of the nature of my experience. I know that's not the same for uh, for everyone. I know other people have different experiences, some overwhelmingly positive, some negative for other reasons. Some people expect to have the greatest spiritual experience of their life and don't. And so I, I have found peace in the temple in returning often over the years. And whereas the first time I went uh, to receive my endowment, it seemed like a foreign place, right? Really strange. Even, even in my religious experience, it seemed like a foreign experience. And it certainly was. But now I go to the temple because it feels like home. It feels like the safest place and the uh, place I'm nearest to God and to the kind of society that he wants us to have. And so I hope people will give the temple a chance. I think President Nelson said something like, if you're struggling with the temple, go more, not less. And I, I can affirm that in my experience, that's been a key to, to it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I love what you said about the temple felt like a foreign place because I think that's what it should feel like. It's supposed to feel different than what we experience on a day-to-day basis. But I, like you, in going to the temple more, have developed such a love for it and such a gratitude for it. But but again, like I said, my first experience was a little bit rough as well. Would you have any advice having studied, especially this, this covenant of consecration, would you have any advice for those that are preparing to make covenants on how to best do that? Well, thankfully today, the church website has got some really excellent resources for uh, endowment preparation. In the old days, when I was getting ready to go, we we had a temple prep course, but we really didn't say anything about what the endowment was like. We sort of talked around it instead of straight to the heart of it. And we've gotten better at that over the years. Elder Bednar spoke in general conference about it, sort of modeling the candid and sacred way that we could talk about it. And um, the church website has resources that reflect that now. So we can learn a whole lot more about what we're going to do. I mean, the the articles on the church website list the covenants that we make in the temple. And I happen to be the bishop of my ward and the young women president. And I noticed that our youth were asking anxious questions about the temple. So we planned a lesson where we brought our temple clothes and we followed the example that President Benson 
said his mother did, where she would iron her sacred temple clothes quite conspicuously uh, in front of her children and, and talk to them, talk to the children about them and teach them about the temple. So in our ward, we invited the youth to ask their questions about the temple. Uh, questions included, why can't we know anything and why, why this or why that? So we showed them that you can know. Um, and we showed them uh, our sacred um, ceremonial clothing. We talked about what these things represent. We talked about the covenants that are made in the temple. We talked about the nature of ritual. Latter-day Saints are, it's sometimes said uh, that Latter-day Saints are really Protestant on Sunday and then very Catholic in the temple, meaning that, you know, we have bare bones ritual on Sunday. Our sacrament is is really scaled down. And then the temple is very uh, ritualistic. Clothing, uh, gestures, very formal and formulaic. Right? You, there's no part of it that, where there's an informal piece, nothing like a testimony meeting or anything like that. So what we do in the temple is so different than what we do on Sunday that it can seem like a completely different church. You've heard maybe, uh, as I have, people say, when I went to the temple, I thought, what church is this? Is this even the same church that I go to on Sundays? So I know that that we can help people who are preparing to go to the temple by not thinking that we can't talk about it. There are some things we, we covenant not to say or not to talk about, but that's a small percent, really of everything that involves the temple. And we certainly can speak positively about making and keeping covenants and being endowed with God's power, with priesthood power, both women and men, as President Nelson has taught us, as Joseph Smith taught us, uh, are endowed with God's power in the temple. So there's so much positive to say about it. And um, we can demystify it in ways that I think will bless and, and help people. So well said. Thank you so much. I completely, completely agree. And I think that, you know, for me, at least, covenants and and making and keeping covenants, I think in our society, commitments in general are a little bit of a lost art. and And... The joy of life, I believe, is found in commitment keeping. And that's one reason I think that the gospel brings joy to people is that in that invitation to make and keep covenants with God, we have commitments that we're keeping on a daily basis. And um, so anyway, I could talk about this all day, but I I want to talk, dig a little bit more into this idea of the law of consecration you have this whole book that is beautifully written and breaks down the law of consecration in a way that I don't think has been published previously. Um, you know, all of the stuff combined. You compare the law of consecration to a three-legged stool. I wondered if that might be a helpful place to start as we talk about this today in explaining what consecration is and whether or not you would you think that is a good place to start. And can we walk listeners through that? Sure, I'll try to. I remember pretty vividly an elders quorum lesson. This must have been in 1999. And um, 
the lesson somehow got on to the topic of, of which is which is God's way of doing things, uh, free market capitalism or or sort of Soviet style communism. Those were the that was way back in the old days when the world was just coming out of of Cold War times. Uh, you won't even remember that from your own experience, just from your, just from your <laughs> history classes. But it was interesting that all of us in that elders quorum that we thought that was those were the possibilities, those were the options, and it was like none of us had read the scriptures because the scriptures don't think that way, and those are not the options available in the scriptures god's way of doing things is not not any of it's not adam smith's philosophy it's not karl marx's philosophy it's none of the philosophies of men with a few scriptures thrown in the scriptures are full of god's way of thinking about resources his resources and the the uh, all the scriptures are but the doctrine and covenants is the most replete with this sort of thing. It, it reveals the order of Zion and the laws of God that, that undergird Zion. And the law of consecration is certainly one of these. And it, there's an enormous amount of ignorance among Latter-day Saints, including myself, of, of the law of consecration. We are quite content to just internalize that uh, that folk doctrine I I sort of described earlier, and I I had mm-hmm. never uh, cared to investigate whether that was true or not, or to what extent. Right? I had never even thought about it, and so when the temple invited me to make a solemn and sacred covenant to live the law as the scriptures. Uh, described it, I had no, I was ignorant. I had no idea what the scripture said about consecration and had been so pacified by what I thought I knew that I had never done any homework on it at all. Well, I try, I've tried ever since then to do the homework. And it turns out when you read the scriptures, especially the doctrine comes, what they say about consecration is not what I thought. And in an effort to try to make consecration as the doctrine comes reveals it communicable you know accessible to folks i have sometimes used this analogy of a three-legged stool there are three doctrines of the law of consecration as we find it in the doctrine covenants that come up over and over and over and they're connected to each other and the idea of a three-legged stool, of course, is if you take any of the legs off the stool, it doesn't work. It doesn't function. Well, in the law of consecration, if you take away any of these principles, then you don't have the law of consecration anymore. And so the principles in no particular order are agency. All of God's children are endowed with the power to live the law of consecration or not, if they want to. And here you can uh, often hear people misunderstanding this part when they say, well, when will we have to live it? Or when will God require us to live it? As if we're expecting something different in regard to consecration than we do in regard to chastity or Sabbath observance or anything else, right? When will God force me to live the law of consecration? Never, ever, ever. 
When, when did he used to? Never. So agency is fundamental. It's crucial. And this is true in the Revelations, but it's also true in the teachings Joseph Smith gave based on the Revelations. Uh, he emphasized to Bishop Partridge, don't force anybody, don't compel anybody to live the law of consecration. Everybody has to decide for themselves whether they'll do it and to what extent they'll do it. And this is really fundamental. In connection with it, another one of the legs on the stool is stewardship. So if we think of agency as the power to act for ourselves of our own free will on God's will, then stewardship is what we have to act upon. And this is really crucial too. Our culture, the highest value in some ways in our culture is ownership. Right? It's instilled in us early and often. It is we are indoctrinated to ownership. And the doctrine of covenants does not work that way. It tries to indoctrinate us to stewardship. The difference is that in ownership, I'm the owner. It's my stuff. I am God. Section 1 talks about this. Everybody's their own God and goes their own way. And a dozen revelations in the book will say that's not the way the universe works. Section 104 is the most emphatic of these, where the Lord three times in a few verses says, it's mine. All things are mine. I created it. It's all mine. And uh, the sooner we get that in our head, the better off we'll be, because we're not the owners of anything. Not oxygen we breathe, not the car we drive, right? We might have a, a title to it, sure. We might have the deed to our house. But in the ultimate sense, Almighty God uh, laid the foundations of the earth, and he, he set the heavens and he is crystal clear in his revelations that that's the way he thinks of things. And we, need, we won't be living the law of consecration until we come around to his way of thinking about things. So I don't own anything in any sort of ultimate sense. I'm a steward of things that God has put into my power, into my hands. That includes my physical body. My, the desk I'm sitting at, the computer I'm looking at, my employment, my spiritual gifts, my time, all of those things are gifts from God that he has given to me. And I have agency or I have power to act upon those things. And I will be living the law of consecration when I act on the things he's given me to act upon in the ways he wants me to act. And then the third doctrine, the third leg on the three-legged stool is accountability. Uh, the scriptures, again, are emphatic about this part. We will be held accountable for the way we exercise our agency to act on the stewardship God has given us to act upon. We're not the owner. We're not unaccountable. We will be accountable to God. And the doctrine comes is very clear on all three of those things. And when we see them together, agency, stewardship, and accountability, and pay attention to the way the revelations link them together, well, then we start to grasp the Lord's way of thinking and explaining uh, the way the world works and the way consecration is fundamental 
to to the order of the celestial world. It is the law of the celestial world. And if we're going to go there, we will be living the law before we get there. It was awesome. That's such a good explanation. Thank you so much. I want to ask a couple of follow-up questions based on the stuff you were just saying. First, you mentioned that there are perceptions that people in church history weren't willing to live the law of consecration, so it was taken away. Can you explain to listeners how that is false? Yeah, it's, it's just way overly simple and overly general, right? History is super complex, and even all of us as individuals were extremely complex. And so to make it simple for us to understand things as complicated as the past, and for example, to explain to ourselves why things are the way they are now, we come up with stories, and and these are simple. We, We often simplify them. So we might, for example, read... Section 42, the Doctrine and Covenants, or Section 51, these are revelations that set forth the law of consecration and tell us uh, some specific ways to enact it in the early 1830s. And we let's say we're reading that as part of our, our um, family gospel study. If we did, we would realize that's not the way we do this now. We don't act the same way today that section 51 tells us to act. So why is that? Right? We have this question. The question creates some, potentially creates some dissonance, and we have to come up with a resolution to that dissonance. And so one way we've often done it is to blame our ancestors for the problem and then put the responsibility to solve the problem onto our descendants. In other words, the easiest way to resolve the problem is to absolve myself. So this is the way it works. You say, yeah, the early saints, they failed. The Lord gave them section 51, but they pretty much dropped the ball. They couldn't do it or they wouldn't do it. So he took it away. And sometime in the future, maybe my grandchildren will have to live the long consecration. (laughs) Yeah, But as for me here now, I'm just going to keep on going my own way, you know, not paying particularly close attention to the revelations that inform my covenants and not worrying about the law of consecration. So I think it's a strategy. It's not, uh, it's not good history. It's not, it doesn't match the historical facts and it doesn't reconcile the revelations except in the most self-serving way of saying, yeah, I don't need to worry about consecration now because those those uh, early saints, they ruined it for me. And uh, I don't have to worry about it until the future time when the prophets tell the saints to do it again. Right, right. That makes, makes complete that, sense. That way of explaining things to ourselves is to pick and choose a few pieces of evidence and to reject uh, 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 10 times more pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, it's funny. It's funny how you explain that, but also so true. And um, I think that you do such a good job of breaking this down in the book that I hope people will take the time to read because we're only going to hit the the high notes today. But another thing that you mentioned is you mentioned Edward Partridge, which is a name that people will recognize from the Doctrine and Covenants. I didn't know a ton about Edward Partridge prior to reading your book. I didn't know, you know, that I recognized his name. I knew that he was a bishop and technically the first presiding bishop. Is that yeah, right? They didn't use the word presiding back then, um, not for quite some time later. But yes, he was the only bishop of the whole church for, okay. for a couple of years and very much the one who led consecration under the prophet Joseph's direction for about the first decade of the church. Okay. And how would you say that he is such a good example of consecration? The very thing that he was being asked to kind of teach, it seems like he exemplified. No doubt about it. I love Edward Partridge. The Lord loved Edward Partridge. He said in section 41 of the Doctrine and Covenants, he said there was a man in whom there's no guile. Now, Edward Partridge was older than Joseph Smith, almost a generation older. And uh, where Joseph Smith is full of the spiritual gifts, a prophet, a seer, a revelator, Edward Partridge has the gifts and abilities of being good with accounts and management and property. He knows how to, he knows how to identify an excellent piece of property, one that's really advantageously situated. So, for example, he, he gets the best pieces of property in Painesville, Ohio, and he builds a hat-making factory there. This is all before the restoration of the gospel. He learns how to bring in the uh, animal furs off the Great Lakes that are being trapped there and turn them into uh, uh, hats that are in high demand in the cities on the East Coast and ship them over the canals and through the lakes uh, down to New York City, Philadelphia. He, he, he's really good at figuring out how to make money, how to provide resources and uh, turn raw materials into, <clears throat> into profitable materials and marketable materials. Well, he's good at all those things, and he is. there's no guile in it. He's not... Uh, primarily driven by money. Um, and that is not a, a common combination. And so the Lord says, that is the guy. That's the kind of combination I need for my bishop. And he, he handpicks Edward Partridge as his first bishop. He says to him, when he calls him in section 41, I want you to lay aside your merchandise and spend all your time in the labors of the church. And Edward Partridge says, absolutely. The next thing he does is uh, calls Edward to go to Missouri with Joseph. And there the Lord identifies Jackson County, Missouri Independence as the center of Zion and the place for the building of New Jerusalem, including a temple. And in the revelation that's in section 57, the Lord says, I want Edward Partridge and his family to plant here. They, they need to be among the first few families to come here and lay the foundation for Zion. Edward had not been planning on that. He'd been thinking of a short-term spring trip 
and then get home in time to take care of his business and his family. He's got, at this point, five young daughters with his wife, Lydia, who, by the way, is every bit as consecrated and devoted as her husband is. But after the revelation in which the Lord calls Edward to buy all the land that he can, he realizes that if he's going to fulfill his calling, he has to stay. He has to be there for the land sales. There's no way he can go back home. This, you know, travel is going to take several weeks either way. So he writes these beautiful letters to Lydia where he explains what the Lord had revealed to and about them in sections 57 and 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He expresses his sense of terrible inadequacy uh, at his calling. But even as he does so, he demonstrates how he's fulfilling his calling because he is he's all in. He is totally consecrated to the church, and Lydia is not a step behind him. She is ready. She packs up the house, the goods, uh, 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 the five little girls, and they she moves, and they she goes out to meet him uh, in Independence. And his letter says, Lydia, you and I are going to have to get used to living a lot less um, affluently than we have been used to. And she doesn't even bat an eye. She's she's on her way. It's just a beautiful example of a whole family that consecrates their whole souls to the kingdom of God. And sometimes early saints are characterized as, you know, sort of crazy people, religious wackos, uh, somebody who would follow this, this Joseph Smith fellow. Well, that just doesn't work for Lydia and Edward Partridge. These are, these are respectable people. Their neighbors respect them. They're prosperous. They're smart. They're, they're great in every way. And this is the cream of the crop. And, and in many ways, characteristic, though, of what early Latter-day Saints are like. So it just won't do for my 19-year-old punk self getting ready for a temple uh, trip to think, boy, those early saints, they just couldn't do it. I could if I were, you know, God asked me to, I, I'd be consecrated, but they, the early saints ruined my chances. It, when we look at the facts of our history, that just, that explanation fails. It doesn't work. It's true that there were early saints who weren't faithful to consecration, but it's not true that the early saints weren't faithful. They were overwhelmingly faithful. They were the best people in the world uh, doing the best they could to, to build the kingdom of God on the earth. And so I, I have decided to stop giving the explanation that puts the blame on them and absolves me of my requirement to keep covenants. Yeah. I love, I loved learning about Edward and Lydia and also other characters in, in church history. You talk about the Allen family and you write on July 1st, 1842, Orville Allen made a list of property that belonged to him and his wife, Jane. It included a few, included a few hogs and stray cows, a lot they were buying, a clock, two axes, a saw, three beds, and a rifle. The list said they owed two hundred. $128 and some bartered goods and that they owed Missouri $25, but Missouri owed them a farm. It said that they and their children were poorly clad, but at your disposal for the building up of the kingdom. So these people would write these notes saying, this is what we're 
we have to give. And you wrote this in the book, the notes that tell this story are informal. They are simple handwritten documents that express deep convictions of consecration. One cannot read them and then put stock in the old story that early saints simply could not or would not keep the law of consecration. They could, many of them would. Um, I wondered, so with this, you know, you've, you've talked about how there's this, this idea that it was replaced by the law of tithing and that, that it can be confusing. What do you feel like are examples of what is being asked of us today? by our prophet as it relates to consecration. Because another thing really quickly that you write, you say, we will do what we have always done. The Lord's living prophets will lead us in enacting the law adapted to our circumstances and challenges, not those of the early saints. The prophets understand and teach the doctrinal basis of the law of consecration. As they are led by the Lord, they adapt it to changing circumstances by applying its pure principles. So what does the law of consecration look like for us today? That's an would excellent you say? question. Uh-huh. Also a mouthful. I was just talking for like five minutes. So you'll have no, to forget. No, please. Uh, I, I should uh, be speak less and you should speak more and everybody would be more edified. No. You know, it is simply a matter of changing our mind. Right? At the end of the book, I give the example of the family on my street who has the bumper sticker on the back of their van that says all in. Well, I live on the same street as this family and, you know, outward observers could, could look and they could say, well, these families live in the houses that are about the same size and, you know, middle-class suburban neighborhood and they drive similar cars and they even go to the same ward and, and you could, you could miss, uh, if you were an outward observer, you could miss that, that one person could be completely consecrated and others not. And you wouldn't be able to detect it in any sort of outward behavior. Um, if you were the bishop, you might be able to, to see that some saints consecrate really, really generously of their financial resources. And others who could, don't. Who, you know, who could based on cl- clear evidence that they could. And then you'd be able to see, for example, that there are the uh, proverbial widows and their consecrated mites that are simply astonishing in their faithfulness. President Hinckley told the story, I tell this in the book, of the widow in Salt Lake City uh, who lived in a, uh, you know, a, a less than affluent neighborhood and a less than a fancy house, less, much less a fancy house than I live in, and how she offered an immense sum of money. And he told the students at BYU that that money had come to them. And he wanted them to understand that that widow was consecrating her life to the kingdom of God and that they should therefore consecrate their lives to the kingdom of God. He wanted them to make the best use of those resources, take their studies seriously uh, be faithful and true to the trust that place, was placed in them, just like she was. So I'm rambling, but but the idea here is there's not a list, there's not a there's not an outward description. You couldn't 
do a litmus test necessarily to say this person lives the law of consecration, this person doesn't. But it has much more to do with a person's heart and mind than it does with any sort of amount that is donated. The Lord in the Doctrine comes says, I require the heart and a willing mind. And though that's what you consecrate, the other stuff is simply fruit, right? Any time you would give or any amount of money you might give or talent that you would consecrate, those are simply fruits from having a heart that belongs to God and a mind with which you serve God entirely. So really, consecration is nothing more or less than faithfulness to the two great commandments. When we love God with all our might and mind and and heart, we want to do His will. And His will, as He expresses it in the Law of Consecration, section 42, is, Thou shalt remember the poor. So just the act of remembering that there are poor people, and they are my people, and I am their people, and they belong to me and I belong to them. Right. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously in an essay about the same time, uh, well, during Joseph Smith's lifetime, during the time the Lord was revealing these revelations, he said, are they my poor? They're not my poor. I begrudge the dime and the dollar that the Relief Societies ask from me to relieve the poor. They're not my poor. Well, that is the exact opposite ethic that the law of consecration commands. And I mean commands emphatically. The, the commandment to live the law of consecration in section 42 says, Thou shalt remember the poor, and consecrate of thy properties for their support, that which thou hast to impart unto them, with a covenant and a deed that cannot be broken. So the Lord expects a faithfulness, fidelity, promises made that will not be broken, promises made that you couldn't uh, convince someone to break, right? And those promises are to look after each other, to be good to each other, take care of each other, not think of ourselves as us and them. I'm the rich, they're the poor. Uh, I'm the haves and they're the have-nots. I've worked hard for what I have and they obviously, there's some defect with them. They deserve what they get. King Benjamin tells us to reject that way of thinking. And certainly the Doctrine of Covenants con- continues that as well. So, sorry to get a little passionate about it, but it, it it's simply a matter of being loving God enough to study His revelations enough to act on them seriously. And uh, certainly there are many, many, many Latter-day Saints who have done that. But there are, I would say, most of us who don't really care what the revelations in the Doctrine of Covenants say and don't really care to enact them in our own lives, even if we've solemnly covenanted that we would. Well, and I, I, I was touched in the book by thinking about 
how different things are asked of different people at different seasons in history for different purposes. And that it's up to us to determine and, and by, by following the prophet through prayer and desire to live this covenant, it's up to us to, to figure out what is being asked of us. And, and so I thought it was great. The examples that you gave of different people at different times who were asked to give different things. Could you share a couple of those examples? Yeah, that's really well said. Uh, you, you might need to help me more and to think through some specific ones if you want to, but uh, my, my students will often want specifics, right? We'll talk for at least two days of class about the principles of consecration as they're revealed in the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's common along the way and at the end for them to, to be very excited about it, to have a deep desire and, and to want a list. Okay, give me a to-do list now. And it's at that point that we say, I can't do that. I don't know for you what this means. This is the time for you to take these principles and seek and receive revelation about how you will live the law of consecration. There are some things asked of all of us. We should all tithe. We should all be faithful in observing the Sabbath day, keeping it holy as a token of our love for God. Uh, we should all be, you know, valiant in uh, mourning with those who mourn and, and so forth. But the exact ways we do that and so forth, that's all individually prescribed by our loving Heavenly Father to us. And in the, the book, I tell about some examples of how people have enacted that in their lives. Certainly Lydia and Edward Partridge did that. Wilfred Woodruff did it in a beautiful way. He, he marched with the camp of Israel in 1834. Everybody who did that, the women and the men, were consecrating their lives to the kingdom. They didn't know if they would live. The Lord had said in the Revelation, calling them, don't be afraid to give your lives for my sake, and with the implication that it wouldn't be a, a surprise if, if some of them did. So when he finished that, Wilfred, who was still single, decided he's going to go on a mission to the south, which is a dangerous mission field in, a, in the, the church history. He was going to go into the south, and before he did, he just took a little scrap of paper and he wrote on it, in order to be a lawful heir to the kingdom of God, I, Wilford, would have consecrate myself freely and all my property and effects unto the uh, bishop, Edward Partridge, bishop of the church, and this I do, uh, uh, that I may be a lawful heir to the kingdom of God on the earth. And in this little note, Wilfred tells us that he perfectly well understands the three doctrines of the law, agency. Twice he says, I do this freely. Nobody's making me. I freely do this. And he tells us that he understands stewardship. He says, I consecrate myself. I consecrate my properties, my effects. He, he made a little list of stuff he had, a shaving kit and things like that. And then he said, I do it so that I may be a lawful heir to the kingdom of God, even Zion on the earth. He understood accountability. And this is half a year after uh, the Missouri mob had disrupted Bishop Partridge's effort to uh, to fulfill the law of consecration the way Section 51 told him to. And we sometimes use that as our historical marker for when the Lord took away consecration. We sometimes, in other words, say, well, Section 105 of the Doctrine and Covenants, about verse 33, 34, the Lord says, 
Let those commandments which I have given concerning Zion and her law be implemented after. We sometimes use that as our way of saying, well, there, there you go. The Lord just suspended the law. First of all, the early Latter-day Saints didn't understand it that way, and that's not what the Revelation says. And certainly Wilfred didn't, didn't believe that, didn't act that way, because right after that, he gives this little note to the bishop, and he doesn't wait for the bishop to call him in or give him any sort of formal paperwork. You couldn't have kept Wilfred Woodruff from, from living the law of consecration. And if you would have told him the story that we tell ourselves, well, those early saints, boy, they just weren't faithful enough. They, didn't, they couldn't do it. He would have said, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about, but I am all in. And you can't keep me from living the law. And so that's just one of, of so many wonderful examples. I love the one of Jane and Orville Allen. That one makes me emotional every time I think about it. Our children are poorly clad, but we are all at your disposal for the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth. Certainly, Lydia and Edward Partridge and many others. I wrote a little bit about my own ancestors. Angeline and Levi Jackman are in there because we have their consecration deed still, the one that the bishop, Bishop Partridge, made for them, and they pass back and forth. That's very touching to me. Are there others you wanted to talk about that I forgot? No, no, no. That was awesome. I I think, you know, I thought it was interesting how when a temple was being built, it's like, okay, we need we need you to give what you can to the temple. Or when they're trying to print the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, we need you to help us get this printed. And and I think that there if you think you know, if you think about it, there have been times where things have been asked of us just in the past few years where it's like, we need you to give what you have to this. And so I think it's touching to think about, you know, how are we contributing to the things that are being asked of us? Stephen, in the book, you talk about what you call the membership mindset versus a consecration approach to gospel living. Can you explain the difference between those two things? And then we'll get to our last question. Yeah, I really appreciate this, Morgan. This means a lot to me. Sometimes it's very poorly understood that the law of consecration is not the united order. When you hear Latter-day Saints say, we don't live the United Order today, or we used to live the United Order or something, you can tell that they don't quite understand what they're talking about. They're, they're sincere, but they don't understand it. Because that would be something like saying, we don't live the corporation of the presiding bishop, or we don't live the corporation of the president of the church, or we don't live the board of trustees, or we don't talk like that because it doesn't make any sense. The law of consecration is what you live. And when people live the law of consecration, the Lord organizes his church in such a way that there are people appointed to manage properties and responsibilities, uh, projects like printing the scriptures or building a temple, right? And, and those, those structures, those institutions for managing that the the earliest one of those we had was called the United Firm. We we call it the United Order. That was its nickname, and it only lasted for two years between eighteen thirty two and eighteen thirty four. In the Revelation, where the Lord commanded, uh, well, not the, the Revelation where the Lord commanded it be organized, is section seventy eight. The Revelation where the Lord built it 
is Section 82. He actually names the members of it. And there were never more than about a dozen members of it. In that revelation, he says something that's so beautiful that I would like to read it because it is the underpinning of this question you asked. Uh, he says he wants the saints to to organize this um, this corporation, really. And he wants them to live the law of consecration as they do it and as they relate to each other in it. And then he sums up. This is section 82, verse 18. All this for the benefit of the church of the living God, and so that everyone may improve upon his talent. And here the Lord uh, may be implying a double meaning of talent, like to include the word we use, uh, you know, something I do well. But he's definitely evoking Mm -hmm. the New Testament parable of talents here, too. So we should be mindful of that. So that everyone may gain other talents, even a hundredfold, to be cast into the Lord's storehouse, to become the common property of the whole church, every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. So to get at the point you asked about, uh, you know, two families might live on the same street, outwardly behave in the exact same ways, and one might be completely consecrated to the kingdom of God on the earth, and the other might not. And the difference, one way of seeing a difference is that one family might be in a membership mindset. And here we might belong to the church in the way we might belong to a country club, right, or to some sort of a subscription service. What do they provide me? What goods and services do I get by paying my dues? That's the wrong way to belong to the kingdom of God on earth. That's not the way Edward Partridge did. That's not the way Spencer W. Kimball did. Uh, That's not the way President Nelson does. And so the right way to belong to the kingdom is to become the common property of the whole church. It's to stop uh, saying, what does the church do for me? You know, I I don't think I'll go to the youth activity because it's not what I want. I don't think I'll um, go to true sacrament meetings. They're boring, right? That's a membership mindset. That's that's. I'm not getting the goods and services I'm paying for or I demand or I deserve. So I'm not all in. A person who lives the law of consecration says, what can I offer? What does the church need from me? What do I have to give? What, what does the Lord want from me? And I'll offer it. It's the difference of being all in compared to being partway in. And it's a mind shift. It has a lot more to do with the willing mind and a willing heart than it does with any kind of dollar amounts. The Lord does not care about the amount of money that we consecrate. That is not the measurement. But he does ask for all, all, all their heart all their might, all their mind, all their strength, all their soul. But in, re- in return for that, remember that he gives all. He gives all. And that's a pretty good, to paraphrase Elder Maxwell, that's a pretty good exchange rate. For sure. And I, I love thinking about 
and I, as you can imagine, when you host a podcast called All In, you're asked to speak a lot about being all in. And a lot of the time I'll talk about, you know, you're making promises with someone who always keeps his promises and who has so much more to give us than we have to give to him. And so, like you said, pretty good, pretty good exchange rate. And uh, I feel almost silly asking this last question for the first time ever on this podcast. I've never felt like silly asking it before because we've talked so much about what being all in means. But but in conclusion, I guess to sum all of this up, Stephen, what would you say it means to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, it's a scary thing to make yourself vulnerable by even being partway in, right, to any kind of relationship. It's scary. You might get hurt. Uh, You might get betrayed. Your trust might get walked on or, and, you know, a lot of people, probably everyone has had that happen in some way or other. And a lot of people have had, had it happen to them in very devastating ways. So to be willing to exercise the incredible depth of love and trust to open yourself up entirely is, is a very difficult thing to do. And that's what God is asking us to do. He's asking us to trust him enough and love him enough to go all in to to our relationship with him. It's essentially a covenant, what we're talking about. What is it that we're being all in on? It's covenant making and keeping. And it's much more common for us to, as the New Testament puts it, keep back part, right? Um, Whether that's, you know, the, the last amounts of money or much more commonly, Uh, the last amounts of our whole heart, our whole devotion. It's fashionable in my, my profession to sort of be, you know, sort of fashionably critical of maybe saints who are too, too zealously in or whatever. In other words, it's in, in just about every personality or every profession or every segment of society, there are, there are lots of pressures, social pressures, maybe, and other re- psychological reasons to not go all in. And the Lord is simply saying, I'm all in. How about you? Right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and the only begotten son gave all. And what they ask of us is that we give all back. And that's a scary thing to do. It requires immense faith and it's okay if we if we uh, if we get there gradually, you know. If we're not ready to go all the way in all at once, they invite us to come just as fast and uh, as we're willing to come. But they're already all the way in, and they're inviting us to come all in, and that's the uh, most fulfilling way to be is to be completely in in making and keeping covenants with God. I you can find this a thousand ways in the scriptures, but one of my favorites is is uh, section 4, the doctrine and covenants. Uh, o ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind and strength. Um, Professor Johnson who preceded me on the faculty of religious education at BYU 
has sometimes said, it's love and all are the key words. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor with all you've got. And a person who does that is also living the law of consecration. So well said. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been such a treat to learn from you. And and I appreciate the time and effort that you've put into putting this book together. I love that it kind of started with that first temple experience and that you've taken us kind of along for that ride. And, and thank you so much for doing Morgan, that. Thanks for all the good things you're doing in the world. I really appreciate it. We are so grateful to Stephen Harper for being with us today. You can pre-order Stephen's new book, Let's Talk About Consecration, on DeseretBook.com now. Huge thanks to Derek Campbell of Mixed Six Studios for his help with this episode. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be with you again next week.